listening to Flex Coaches Inside the Game. We're talking with sportscaster Bob Costas. So your first big break you come along is to go to the Spirits of St. Louis in the ABA. You're only 22 years old. How much do you think that year of doing hockey helped you get that job in St. Louis? It helped me because it increased my confidence. By the time that season was over, I had become reasonably good at it and was getting good feedback. So I felt like, unlike a year prior when I was a college broadcaster, I felt like I was in the early stages of being a professional broadcaster. And the trick was that when I heard about the opening, the Carolina Cougars moving uh, to St. Louis and being renamed the Spirits, my roommate during my sophomore year at Syracuse, who then transferred to Swarthmore in Pennsylvania, but we stayed in touch, he was a second cousin of the president of the Spirits of St. Louis. So he calls me and says, they need an announcer. Why don't you send a tape? And I'm thinking, this is KMOX. I got no shot at this whatsoever. <laughs> and so I take the same tape that got me the Blazers job, the Syracuse Rutgers game. I listen to it. There's several good sequences. I edit out anything that had a little fumble in it or whatever. And if there was a reference to the time of the score, I edited that out too. So it seemed like it was sequential. Syracuse with the ball, Rutgers with the ball. And then we re-recorded it with the treble down and the bass up because I was 19 or 20 when I did it. So we yeah. wanted to sound a little more authoritative and have a richer voice. So we made that little adjustment and I sent it off. And lo and behold, they call me in to have an interview and Jack Buck talks to me and blah, blah, blah. And they had some 200 applicants and maybe the fact that I was willing to work very cheap. Uh, they paid me 11 grand, not just for the, for the season, but for the year to also yeah. do other broadcasts or, around the scene. If I had 11 grand, I would have paid them to have the job. <laughs> so, so, you know, just like this, the Blazers thing, it was unlikely, but I landed the job. Was it a lot of fun? I mean, did you oh. think you would arrive now as a broadcaster? Now I'm really I'm hitting the big time in the in the ABA. It's professionals. It's it's different mm -hmm. for me. Well, the ABA in its own way was wild, just like the Eastern Hockey League. Uh, the Terry Pluto ball, uh, Terry Pluto book rather, loose balls, which is a narrative history of the ABA, sums the whole thing up. Uh, and if I wasn't there, I would think if I read this that they were making it up. Uh, it was just a crazy league. It it had many great talents, and it had a wide open style that ultimately came to influence the NBA, the three-point yeah. shot, the dunk contest at the All-Star Game, but also just the more freewheeling style of play. So you had Julius Irving in that league, you had Artis Gilmore and Dan Issel is in the league, and George McGinnis is in the league. Um, a lot of guys uh, who were really good, and people underrated because of the red, white, and blue ball, and the NBA looked down its nose at the ABA. But the first year after the merger, uh, 10 of the 24 players in the All-Star game had played in the ABA. And half of the 10 starters in the final between the Trailblazers and uh, the 76ers had played in the ABA. So the quality was there. But many of the teams, a few were exceptions. Denver was an exception. The Pacers were an exception. But many of the teams were operating on a shoestring. There were times, literally, where you'd arrive at the hotel for a road game and they wouldn't give you the keys and wouldn't let the team check in because they hadn't paid the bill from the last time. You know, and the Spirits played in the cavernous St. Louis arena where Final Fours had been. Right, the, later became a checker dome and Ralston Purina owned the Blues. And the Blues would sell out almost every game. And we'd have to fudge it 
um, and there'd be 1,200 people there and we announced there was 2,200 or something like that. We might get 5,000 when Dr. J and the Nets came in. So it, it, was, it was an interesting experience. And it's only in retrospect when I look back on it that I realized that the two craziest things I was ever involved in are my first two jobs. Nothing was simultaneously as wonderful and as insane as the Eastern Hockey League and the old ABA. Everything after that was relatively staid. <laughs> so let's get into now um, how you prepare when you're going to do a game or you're going to mm -hmm. do an event. Um, study, you know, I always tell kids studying is, is very important when you're going to prepare to do a game, you're going to do anything. Yes. And um, what do you do? How do you get yourself ready to, to do a game? When you're, going to, when you're going to call a baseball game on MLB Network, like how, how far out do you start to prepare yourself for like the Wednesday game? Well, you hope that some of the preparation has been ongoing, including your understanding of the history of the game, the issues that surround the game, that sort of thing. Um, and as the season unfolds, a season for each team and for the league has certain themes to it. So you hope that by osmosis, you're, you're ingesting all of that. I would probably start um, 48 hours before. Uh, we have a very good research department at MLB, as we did for every sport I covered at NBC. So they give me some material. During the course of the year, I'm making notes about stories or points I'd like to make. I have a folder on every team. You know, even if it's a team that's unlikely to be featured, they might be, or somebody gets traded from that team. So you're, you're keeping files. And it's different on television as opposed to radio. If you're doing a basketball game or a hockey game on the radio, primarily what you're concerned with is how quickly and accurately can you call the play. A baseball game on television is an entirely different thing, especially the pace of baseball games now. Baseball is supposed to have a leisurely and pleasing leisurely pace, and too often, sadly, these days it has a lethargic pace. So you need a lot of material and observations, anecdotal stuff, and over time, you get to where you understand the pace and rhythm of a game. Vin Scully was the very best at that. He was always able to work in an observation or a little anecdote or aside, and it never seemed to get in the way of anything that was about to happen. He'd get out before the pitch or he'd be able to adjust and pick the story back up. He was close to perfect at it, uh, but that's the ideal. That's what you're, you're aiming for. And I always tell kids when I talk to classes, you, you can't broadcast the game that you brought in your briefcase, but you better bring a bunch of good stuff. You've worked with me. You've been behind me yeah. uh, in the booth. I use maybe 20% of what I've prepared, but you don't know exactly which 20%. You got a pretty good idea that there are certain things you're almost certain to say, but then there are others that you'll only use if and when the circumstance calls for it. And you don't know if a game is going to go 18, 19 innings. You just don't know. Uh, sometimes kids, when they're starting out, they're so overeager, they, they'll say, oh, wait, I, I didn't use these 10 things. I better get them in in the last two innings or in the last quarter of the game. No, unless it's absolutely essential. What the audience cares about is have you been accurate and is what you did say worthwhile and well presented? You're not like in college trying to fill the blue book up on the final and get extra credit. <laughs> We're filling 10 pages instead of seven. That's, yeah. that's how it works. So 
Do you think about what you're going to say if there's a historical moment coming up? Do you think of vocabulary? Do you think how you want that to flow? You know, language is very important when you yeah. call a game. And it's very important for you to get it right because this historical moment could wind up or this moment could become yeah. part of like a living history. Do you ever think about like phrases you might use or things you might say if you know something might happen in a game? You know, I know some people do that and I'm not criticizing them for that. Uh, they anticipate a scenario that may play out and they've got something almost scripted to the word that will be the caption beneath that picture. If we're talking about television, <clears throat> that's something I've never done, but you do have at least thoughts in your head. Think of the last dance season with the yes. Bulls. I knew that when it got to be three games to one, Bulls are up three to one and the Jazz won game five in Chicago and sent it back. The fifth game, the sixth game, and the seventh game, if there was one, any one of them could have been Michael Jordan's last game. But right to the end of game six, Utah's winning. Even after Michael makes the shot with five seconds to go, they're only up one, and John Stockton's shot barely misses at the buzzer. So I couldn't have scripted anything even if I'd wanted to, but I had certain thoughts in my head, I, which is where you have most thoughts as opposed to in your elbow. People say that all the time. <laughs> I'm thinking in my mind. I have yeah. a thought in my head. Oh, thanks for clearing that up. So anyway, um, when, game, as, when game five, and I'd forgotten this until I watched The Last Dance uh, a couple of years ago, uh, when game five began and we're bringing it on the air, and it was in Chicago and three games to one, I had said, if this is The Last Dance, it might as well be on their dance floor. So, you know, it, you have a notion about what's out there, what the narrative is, what the storylines are, but I don't like to script it. What happened in that moment when Michael made the shot, uh, Doug Collins and Isaiah Thomas analyzed it. They had slow motion stuff, but I think it's my job. And I think that any good broadcaster, Al Michaels would have done it, Jim Nance would have done it, whoever you want to pick, in their own way they would have done it. You need to frame that in some way. This just isn't the potential conclusion to an exciting NBA final. It's potentially when the curtain comes down on one of the most epic careers in the history of American sports. So it, it's my job to do that out of the three of us. So there's a replay, and I say this might have been, depending upon what unfolds in the next several months, the last shot Michael Jordan will ever take in the NBA. And then luckily for me, the director, Andy Rosenberg, was going with a slow motion shot of the move, the release, the perfect release. And literally as the ball passed through the net, I just happened to say, and if that's the last image of Michael Jordan, how magnificent is it? Then 20 years or whatever it is later, when the last dance is, uh, is a big deal and everybody's watching it because there's no other sports, you feel reasonably satisfied that that holds up pretty well. Um, another one I'm thinking of, 1999, the Yankees complete the sweep of... Uh, the, the Braves, and I'm doing the game with Joe Morgan on NBC. It's a fly ball to left field. Uh, Mariano Rivera's closing it down. The game's not in doubt. And I hadn't thought of anything beforehand, but luckily, as the ball descended, I said, the New York Yankees, world champions, team of the decade, most successful franchise of the century. And that turns out to be a pretty decent summation. And every time I'm at Yankee Stadium, during batting practice and stuff, when they play kind of highlights of Yankee history. That's one of the things that's up there. So you feel good about that. Now I'll give you one though. Um, maybe this is more than what you bargained for. 
that proves I don't script it. And sometimes it doesn't work out as well as it could. 1995, the Braves have been in the playoffs uh, almost every year of the decade. And this is the third time they've been in the World Series. And they're ahead of Cleveland, three games to two. And they win game six, one to nothing in Atlanta. And the last out is a fly ball to left center field, which Marquise Grissom catches. And as, as he closes in on the ball, I say, the team of the 90s has its world championship. Well, how the hell did I know that the Yankees would then begin a run starting in 1996? But even then, the Braves had a chance to make me right if they had won yes. that World Series in 99, which they didn't. But the, the, the real point of it for me is that, okay, you're on television, you don't need to describe everything, and the home team is won, so it's pandemonium. So now you just shut up after I've said whatever I've said, for better or worse, and it occurs to me, like five seconds later, this phrase popped into my mind, Atlanta at last. Now, if I had scripted stuff, that would have been good. Yes. <laughs> I could have in my, in my hip pocket, that would have been good and a lot better than what I did say, but <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, after a game is done, do you go back and listen to yourself and study what you did and, and, and pick it and say, you know, next time I have this and, and stuff like that? I do. And, you know, the last couple of years with COVID, when um, all the networks had, were reaching into the archives um, on the NBA network and especially on the baseball network. And, and even now with the lockout, they're playing a lot of old games. And, and I can see how in the 80s and 90s, my rhythm and pace were better. I was sharper then. And I'll be 70 years old next month. Um, and you lose a little bit. And what I used to take for granted, I can no longer take for granted. I still prepare just as hard, but I used to have a, a more natural facility that the right word was almost always there or the recollection, whatever it is that I read or thought about would pop mm -hmm. to mind right away. And so I think it's somewhat like, and I do look at the tapes, it's somewhat like a pitcher who's lost something off his fastball. You know, how can I, how can I figure out how to do this? How can I work the corners a little differently? How can I rely um, not on just the fastball, but on a little bit of craftsmanship? So the reason to, to watch it is not to revel in what you did, but to critique what you did and figure out how to maintain a standard or get back to that standard. Does that frustrate you? That you may, you think you might be losing it. I don't, I don't think you're losing it. I mean, and other friends of mine who listen to you think you're still very good at what you do. Mm -hmm. But I mean, are you that hard on yourself at times? I'm very hard on myself. Probably too hard for my own good. My friends tell me that. Um, I think, especially with baseball, if someone just tunes in and they hear three or four innings, sounds just like it once did. And I get a lot of that. Hey, it's so great to hear you do baseball again because they associate it with the 80s and in the 90s, but there'll be little moments that happen where I say to myself, you know, I, if, if you gave me every game, I couldn't find one moment where I was off that way in 1995, but it does tend to happen now. Um, so am I 90% as good as I was? Yeah. And are there some games where I'm 100% as good as I was? Yeah, but not 100% of the time. That's just being honest. That doesn't mean that I, you know, a guy could have a lifetime batting average way over 300. If he's hitting 290, he's still a useful player. You know, but yeah. anybody knows. You sound like Tom, Tom Glavin said to me, uh, we had him on, he said, he goes, a third of the time you're untouchable, a third of the time you stink, 
and a third of the time you don't know what's going to happen. And then that third of the time we don't know what's going to happen. That's what you have to figure out to do to win. Yeah. And he goes, it's that really, that's what it comes down to as a pitcher. He said in major league baseball, it's, it's that simple. I was like, Oh my gosh, what's the importance of knowing the history of the game? How very. important is that? Do you feel? I think it's very important. I think it's most important in baseball because baseball's history is longest and richest and baseball fans tend to care more about history. You know, a football fan, even an avid fan, doesn't really care what Jim Brown's career rushing total was and what Emmett Smith's is now or what Walter Payton's was when he passed it. It's not as big a deal that Johnny Unitas and Fran Tarkenton are way, way behind Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and Drew Brees because the game has changed so much. That's one, so much yeah. why, that's one of the reasons why the steroid era was so damaging, not only because it, it distorted competition in the here and now, but it poisoned the record books. It's always difficult to compare across eras because the game changes. But what the steroid era does did is that it blew the whole thing up. Um, and, that's, and that's regrettable. But it is important to know the history because there are times when, <clears throat> when it's relevant. I think it's true in any sport. I suspect that Mike Breen, if called upon, could give you a dissertation about Will Chamberlain. And I know for a fact that Doc Emmerich could give you a dissertation about Gordy Howe. Uh, and you can't be good at what you do or as good as you should be if you don't have that understanding and the ability through a good frame of reference to, <clears throat> to pull it into play when it's pertinent. And sometimes I think that younger fans are annoyed if there's a reference that's outside their frame of reference. Now, if you're sitting there just reminiscing about, you know, snuppy Sternweiss all game long, you're, you're doing it all wrong. But when Jose Altuve comes up in a game and they list where he is in all-time postseason home runs, it's relevant to point out there was nothing but the World Series when Babe Ruth hit his 15, nothing but the World Series when Mickey Mantle hit his 18. So when you're looking at Jim Tomey and Bernie Williams, it's all terrific, but it's a different context. You got three yeah. layers of playoffs and with a wild card, maybe four uh, when you play just the one wild card game. And if they expand the playoffs, the whole thing has been, it, I'm not saying it's wrong to do it, but, but it's an entirely different context to point that out, especially between pitches. You're not dwelling on it and you're not saying in my day, Sonny, Mickey Mantle, none of these guys, you know, but, but here he is right over my shoulder uh, yes. <laughs> along with Willie Mays. This is the, this is studio 24 uh, yes. seven. network. Anyway, so, I think there are times when uh, when a frame of reference and a sense of history is very helpful, and it gives a texture to the broadcast. I'm Chris Riley. You're listening to Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach. Stay tuned for more segments here with Bob Costa.